taken a week or perhaps two uh, hiatus from the book of 1 Corinthians and would like to uh, give you another installment of the progress of redemption through the scriptures here with the gospel of Mark. And uh, so I'd like to ask you to turn to that, um, to the gospel of Mark, to the, the first chapter. Some of that was read in your hearing. Mark's the shortest gospel. It's got 16 chapters. Um, it Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to uh, turn pages with me. Uh, Mark is a gospel that we hopefully can kind of wrap our hands around a bit and see a major theme in the gospel of Mark. And really, that theme, um, a number of Bible students are persuaded that the theme uh, in the gospel of Mark is that of discipleship. And discipleship certainly is a a worthy theme for us this morning, this idea of the universal call of discipleship to the Lord Jesus. You know, and for Mark, uh, this idea of discipleship had to do with a relationship with Christ, with this idea that what it is that God is calling us to, what it is that the Lord Jesus is calling to in salvation is, is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this is something that, you know, is, is kind of hard for us to understand. We, we are drawn into, we are compelled, we are uh, commanded, as it were, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit as God's redeemed people to enter into union with the Lord Jesus, into a relationship with a living being, albeit one that we cannot see or and sometimes sense His presence. And so that may perhaps draw our minds away from the realities of the truth. That when we come to faith in Christ, when we are redeemed, we we enter into a union with, we enter into this discipleship, this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, of all things, should be an indication that, uh, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis has said, we were clearly made for another place, the place of heaven. So for Mark, discipleship was a relationship with the Lord Jesus, not merely following a certain code of contact, uh, uh, of conduct or belief in a certain set of theological facts. In other words, discipleship isn't the affirmation of orthodoxy. That is a very important idea. It's appropriate that we would ask the question in this day, which Christ? That one that is revealed in the Scriptures, that true Christ, the Son of God, the only Son of God, the one that is revealed in the Bible, that one that was uh, incarnated, um, the Son of the Virgin Mary, chosen from before the foundation of the world to be Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, that's the Christ. Also, we know that discipleship is to be what what it is that the word means. The word discipleship means learner. It means learner. That's all it means. It's learner. And there are a lot of connotations to this idea of discipleship in the Bible. Uh, but nonetheless, they, they have to do with this, this idea of being a learner. 
A learner implies humbly coming to one who can and will teach vital things. Because of the power and life-giving nature of redemption, we know that these learners, these disciples of Christ, uh, because of that power, we also know that they're disciple makers. That really validates the, uh, the truthfulness of a confession of Christ. That not only am I a learner, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus, but but that I've involved myself in, in this bubbling over of this living fountain of life such that others would involve themselves in seeing this life-giving work of Christ in me. Fellowship with Jesus marks the heart of the disciples' life. And this fellowship includes trusting Christ. Trusting Christ. Often... The trust that we express to other people has limitations. They're provisos. I trust you in this way, but not that way. I trust you with dinner, but not the car. I trust you with this and not that. Being a disciple is a holy and empowered by the Holy Spirit ability to grow in a complete, comprehensive trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, it has to do with confessing Christ. Confessing Christ. Now, the term confess is certainly used in the Bible, and when we get to that section... I would like to draw a distinction, as does Martin Luther, between professing Christ and confessing Christ. The idea of professing Christ uh, was a very common term uh, in Luther's day as well as in Bunyan's day. John Bunyan deals a good bit with the term professor. In my first time through Pilgrim's Progress years ago, I was beginning to think that he was referring to an academic teacher at a college. It has nothing to do with an academic teacher at a college. It has to do with someone who, as Martin Luther says, professes faith, but one who doesn't confess faith. To profess something, the the very meaning of the word implies that it actually isn't altogether true. I'm professing something. The implication is is that the clarity and the depth of the certainty of the object isn't there. That's reserved for the word confess. And that's the idea that Martin Luther had. So we'll look at that in the book of Mark here. Also, this idea that disciples take note of the conduct of Christ. Often we rightly are... Uh, desire is to understand what did Jesus say? And we receive that often as exhortation. But disciples also look at what Jesus did, right? And they receive that as well. The Lord Jesus said, My Father is working. And so I also work. That's different than hearing the Lord Jesus say, My Father said that I should work. And therefore, I work. Now, of course, the two should result in the same thing. But nonetheless, we see that a disciple in the life of the disciple not only hears, but sees, right? The teaching, the work of Christ. There's also a 
an, a conspicuous conformity by relationship to Christ. Are you beginning to look like your Savior? If I am truly redeemed, then I will begin to truly, in reality, be conformed to Christ. Right? And then lastly, that we would be prepared to face the kind of rejection that Jesus faced. These six ideas stand out in the text And uh, as I said, hopefully you'll join me as we turn pages in this gospel and see how these are laid out for us. Now let's consider Mark, the one who God used to write the book. Who was Mark? We, We know that the gospel of Mark, for instance, is actually a record of Peter's relationship and understanding of discipleship, of apostleship. It's a, it's a record, really, of Peter's association with Christ, directed primarily at a Gentile audience as he addresses an audience unfamiliar with Jewish customs. The idea is that they would begin to understand the Jewish customs such that they would then understand the full comprehensive nature of this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And only in that context can they see Jesus as the culmination of God's work with Israel. And really, that's important for us as well, isn't it? We can't, we can't just pick up the story, for instance, in the New Testament, right? We, we, don't, we wouldn't really understand uh, this, this amazing idea of the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth of the second person of the Trinity, or the understanding of, of substitutionary atonement, or this idea of being set apart, of being sanctified for Christ, or, or this concept of sin and of uh, the two-part person that God has made, spirit and body, and that there's material and non-material things. And we, we see this uh, in the Scriptures. We understand the, the proclamation of a perfect, omnipresent creator of all things for a relationship with Him. That was important to our God, and so that's what Mark was used to do. So who was this Mark? Well, he had a reputation for being a follower of Jesus. His position relating to missionary journeys and ministry was that of of helper. He wasn't the main guy, of course. Peter, Barnabas, Paul. They weren't Mark. Mark wasn't them. Mark was a follower of Christ. He was a helper. He fought against and overcame his weaknesses. He delighted to picture Christ in action for the salvation of sinners to the glory of God. Christ in action. If you've studied uh, Mark recently, or perhaps if for some reason maybe you've read through Mark recently, you, you, you might uh, note what appears to be Mark's favorite word. Immediately. Immediately. It's used 39 times in the Gospel of Mark. It's only used a, a little bit over 100 times in the whole New Testament. So, so Mark has taken to himself like 40% of the uses of, of, the, of the word immediately in his Gospel. 
And this is a wonderful idea for us because we see in this uh, a marked characteristic of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's here with us. He's always with us. Always ready. Never late. Always on time. Active. Involved. The character that we see in the narrative of Mark of our Lord Jesus Christ has not changed. Right? The same Lord Jesus that walked the earth when Mark was writing about him, we know is the same Lord Jesus that is our Savior. Active, eager, earnest, sincere, thoughtful, attentive. That's Christ. We should expect that uh, Mark has been dealing in the currency of the gospel for his entire life. For instance, we can look in Acts chapter 12 and see that in his home uh, is the place where they were praying for Peter to be released from prison. His mother Mary was evidently a woman of means, and she used her means for the gospel. Acts 15 also indicates that Mark deserted the missionary team in Pamphylia which led Paul to consider him an unsuitable traveling companion for his second missionary journey. We, uh, we don't really have a lot of dirt, as it were, on Mark. But we know that there was a sharp disagreement between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas regarding taking Mark with him on the journey. And we also know that this occasion for Paul and Barnabas to become not one team, but two. And we also have the interesting fact that Barnabas picked Mark. (laughs) So so nonetheless, uh, but what we have also in the sweetness of the Lord is uh, a resolution for this, and that is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. It was no small matter for Mark to leave the mission journey in Pamphylia and to go home, but you... Uh, I could certainly understand why. So, I mean, think of think about. I mean, what kind of reputation did his traveling companion, the Apostle Paul, have? I mean, how would you like to go on a trip with the Apostle Paul? Uh, you'd be like, hey, uh, you know, this isn't looking too good for us. The civil authorities. They're after us, Paul. Paul says, yeah, yeah, I I know. And you turn over here and you're hungry and you say, Mr. Paul, I mean, no lunch, no dinner, no breakfast? Yeah, I know. It's all right. And then you wonder about where you'll stay. 
Paul says, yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll be okay. The young man Mark might have might not, might not have been quite exactly ready for that. But we know that the Lord bolstered his abilities and he became to Paul not just this guy that might do him some good, but this one who noteworthily is personally requested as an individual who is very important to me for ministry. What a sweet testimony. As we consider the style of the Gospel of Mark here, it's like a fast-paced movie. Let's look at uh, a few of the passages here and just kind of get a feel for, for the writing. If you would, please turn with me to Mark 5. Mark chapter 5. And I appreciate your your patience this morning. This is, uh, I, I pray that this doesn't seem too, too fast-paced for you. It's a challenge for me not to think also of the Word immediately as I look at this uh, passage, but I want to encourage you to, to just let's stick together and, and look and see what the Lord has for us in the, in the book of Mark here. So Mark 5, 2, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had been often bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So here's Jesus. He's just calmed the storm in the narrative in chapter 4. Here he is. He's in the boat. They've just come through a storm. They get to the shore. And what does he encounter? Well, he encounters a man, but he's not a man with one demon. He's a man with a legion of demons. And there he is at Christ's feet. Think of it. What are you going to do? Mark tells us what he does. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 30. Mark six thirty. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is after the Lord Jesus had sent them out. Then he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And as they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I'm really persuaded that Mark really wants to give us a feel for just a day in the life of Jesus. 
just today, and it's no no surprise, right? While we 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 see that he wants to go away to a desolate place, and it might give you this impression that the Lord Jesus is always a man of retirement, always quiet, always calm, always you know, but just such such a demand made upon him. We can see how he would need to be in a quiet place. Let's look at chapter seven, verse thirty-one. Chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven, He sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I'd like to show you just one other in chapter 9. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Again, we're thinking of the experience, right, that that the fisherman Peter had with Christ. He saw as an eyewitness Peter, this rough-hewn fisherman Peter, the one who was far more like a no-nonsense sailor than a manicured clergyman. Peter. I mean, his name means rock. This is his experience. In Mark 9, look at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and it fell. he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And this is my favorite line in the story. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. The Lord Jesus, in verse 29, said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know, as a response to the teaching of Christ that we've read about here, there really, perhaps we could see categorically three three responses. One response is that of belief. That of belief in Mark chapter 2, the friends of the paralyzed man, when Jesus saw their faith, verse 5 of Mark 2, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, his friends, and so he sees this faith, and what does he see uh, in Mark chapter 2 that seems to compel the Lord Jesus that these really mean business? If you were to cast your eyes on the first few verses in chapter 2, you would notice that this is... This is that occasion where these men go up on the roof and they begin to literally tear the roof apart so they can drop this man down in the middle. Wow. That's, I mean, that's faith. Not concerned at this moment about the homeowner, right? Or about uh, perhaps the kind of treatment they might receive after being mocked and scorned over taking the roof apart, but they are fully committed because they know who this one is, the Christ. And they bring their paralyzed friend to Him. Some believed. Some were bewildered. As a matter of fact, early on, His own family, we see in Luke, excuse me, Mark chapter 2, verse 20, So all the crowds continue to gather around the Lord Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, He went home and a crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when His family heard it, they went out to seize Him, for they were saying, He is out of His mind. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph, whom they knew had other siblings, He comes home and this massive crowd comes and follows Him. And Jesus is okay with it. This is life for Him. But His his family thinks He's lost His mind. Some were absolutely bewildered at this. They, They were confused. They were completely mystified about it. The same, of course, to His disciples as He walked on the water. We see in chapter 6. And then the last category, some were belligerent. They were aggressive. They were opposed. They were antagonistic to Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Chapter 3, 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether He would heal him on the Sabbath. Not so they could rejoice, but that so they could accuse Christ. Some believed, some were 
bewildered and some were belligerent. Now, let's look at this universal call. I mentioned to you six six ideas associated with discipleship, with being associated with the Savior, with the Lord Jesus. Let's consider what this discipleship is, this, the realities of being redeemed. This is, this is um, by necessity that which must occur to those who are given new life in Christ, right? We become disciples. He makes us disciples. It's, it's inevitable that when God gives us life in Christ that we are disciples and we see some of the aspects of this here. First, as I mentioned, the relationship with Jesus. It's not merely just doing certain things or even necessarily believing certain things, although it certainly uh, is true that the call to Christ, a living call, will result in actions as well as right thinking. When we look at chapter 1 in verse 14... After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, John 1.14, as is the case for this gospel of Mark, we see, we see activity, we see the importance of just the chronology of all this, and we see that John, the baptizer, has stepped off the scene, right? And just as if this were a relay race, right, what we see here is the baton gets passed from John to the Lord Jesus in this flawless transition. And Christ enters into the scene. Verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Think about the way that the Lord Jesus Christ can call people to himself. The first and last words that he said to Peter, recorded in all of the Gospels, is exactly what's written here. Follow me. Follow me. The Lord Jesus Christ has this amazing ability to call people to himself in a saving way. This relationship with Christ. Their decision to follow him was a testimony to his greatness and power over men. They left everything to follow Christ. The call was to follow him in discipleship. He intended to lead them and to teach them and do something that required following, being taught, learning by watching him, to make them fishers of men. Those who testify to the greatness of Christ that they have seen and that which led them to follow Him. I don't 
reckon that they had ever heard of the idea of being fishers of men. That is, these new disciples becoming disciple makers. But they got a full education with the Lord, didn't they? Perhaps we should ask ourselves a similar question that no doubt was on the minds of those whom Jesus called. What kind of impact is the gospel call having on you? When the Lord Jesus calls him calls us to himself, it's not like anything else, is it? I mean, We've all had people call us and ask us to do things, haven't we? Come go with me. Please do this with me. Are we moved immediately by the greatness of Christ? By the one who calls us? That's a difference, isn't it? There's a difference. Secondly, the idea of trusting Christ. The idea of trusting Christ. We have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, firstly. Secondly, trusting Christ. If you would turn to chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2. I've already mentioned the story. Consider the men who carried the paralytic. Here they are digging up, destroying the roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. All the crowds there, certainly an indication of the popularity of Christ. And so perhaps a question, what are the outward signs that you are trusting in Christ? What are the outward signs that I'm trusting in Christ? It's hard for us in our culture because our culture is a very conspicuous culture. We, we want everybody to know we got a new car or we did this or we did that. We're very conspicuous, right? We, we want everyone to see this. We're, we kind of live certain areas of our lives uh, very openly public, right? The question would be, what are these sincere indicators, right, that, that you are trusting in Christ? And uh, it's difficult. Many of us have grown up in a culture also that says that religion is a very private matter. It's very private. And so that, that kind of messes a little bit with our minds sometimes, doesn't it? It's not that the point here isn't that we're showing, right? We're not, we're not trying to be proud in this sense, but, but no doubt there's going to be indications that we're trusting in Christ. It might be the ways that our own character is growing in grace. It might be the language that we use. It might be the ways we spend our money. It might be the kindness that we're trying to focus on. Thirdly, confessing Christ, chapter 8, verse 27 through 29.
So in Mark chapter 8, we have a, a fascinating fascinating putting together here, a juxtaposition of two situations. First, we have Peter's declaration of Christ, and then we have a very interesting situation after that. So let's look at the text here, Mark 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So we see already there's uh, no doubt the desire that Peter would view this as, a, as an affirmation, a, a claiming of a confession of Christ. Yes, he is the Messiah. And then immediately it seems that not fully understanding what it meant for Messiah, he would then attempt to actually go and rebuke the Lord Jesus. No doubt he didn't, didn't understand what he was doing. We know that he grew in his faith and his understanding as days went on. Martin Luther's quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages there, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields, besides, is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. The idea is really a simple idea, but it is a very important idea for the validation of our confession of Christ. And what, what Luther is saying is that if we were to take the illustration or the motif of of a soldier on the battlefield, if I were reporting my actions to my commanding officer and I were to say, well, everywhere I went today, I stood my ground. And if everywhere I went today, the enemy wasn't present, and I stood my ground, that really isn't an indication of my commitment to the task at hand, right? The real, the real question, the real way in which I might validate my, my commitment, my saving commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, is how did it go in the fight? The Apostle Paul says to Peter a number of times, fight the good fight. That's the idea. The soldier is tested 
on the battlefields where the fighting is occurring. Am I professing faith? Or am I confessing faith? What a challenging question. We recognize that in our humanity it seems to change sometimes. And may the Lord continue His work in our lives as He wipes away the old residue of our sinfulness and our fickleness as humans and gives to us a delight in engaging where it is that He's placed us. Fourthly, a disciple takes note of the conduct of Jesus in chapter 6, verse 12, a place that we've already referenced to some degree. As Jesus sends out the twelve apostles, two by two, we see what they were doing in chapter 6, verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It's a simple message. It's what disciples do, right? And sometimes it might be that we think of this repentance as this singular thing that occurred when I first came to Christ. We might be inclined to think of it in terms of something that I have already done. with the idea that I never need to do that again. But what we see here in those who are following Christ, those disciples, is that this repentance and this belief is something that are ongoing for His people. Fifthly, being shaped by a relationship with Christ. In chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, we see... the feeding of the 4,000. And they have a discussion about leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees. In chapter 8, verse 14, they had forgotten to bring bread. And perhaps we could say at this point that traveling with Jesus was a little bit different than traveling with Peter or Paul. Paul never produced any bread, but Jesus did. Jesus wasn't really bothered by the fact that they didn't have any bread. He cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Well, hardened about what? Well, hardened about the fact that you don't have to worry about bread with me. I don't know. Don't worry about that. I'm the Son of God. Verse 18, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the loaves for the 5,000? And the seven for the four thousand? 
Do you not yet understand? The question, can we think of a recent encounter we've had with our living Christ that's conformed us noticeably to Him? Can you think... What a hard question. Can you think of a recent occasion in which you've encountered Christ, most notably in the Word of God, such that you can see a conformity to Christ. Reading the Scriptures, perhaps, and you you have a moment like Christ is alluding to with the disciples here. Do you not yet understand? And when you were able to say after reading, now I do. Christ is working in my life. As I think about where I was last week or last year regarding conformity to Him, look at His work. Lastly, being prepared to face the kind of rejection Jesus faced is also a mark of these true disciples. Chapter 13. beginning in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There are a lot of reasons that we can be hated in this world. A lot of reasons. Some of them are associated with the kind of rejection that Jesus faced. So the question for us, do we have the faith to face the kind of difficulty that comes from being a follower of Christ. People dislike us because we're annoying or because we're unkind or because we're mean or because we've sinned against them. And these, of course, these are not categories in which the Lord Jesus faced His rejection Do we have the faith to face the kind of difficulty that comes from being a follower of Christ? It's a tough question. Because in all of our best moments of following the Lord, they seem to be mixed 
with inappropriate anger or shards of unkindness. Discipleship. That's what the Lord Jesus calls us to. Relationship with Christ. Trusting Christ. Confessing Christ. Taking note of His conduct and following His teaching. Being shaped by a relationship with Him and being prepared to face the kind of rejection Jesus faced. This is the fellowship of the Son. What a glorious thing it is to be with God's people. If you're not yet in the fellowship, hopefully it doesn't seem primarily scary to you in Mark, but hopefully it's one of those things that today you can be reminded in the book that this, this is where we've been made for. This is what we've been designed to do. This is where we're going. These are God's people. I'm going with them. We're going to Zion. This is what God has made us for. We can go there together with Christ. Let us pray.